Welcome to Pip Talk, a podcast featuring interviews with rebels, visionaries, mystics, outliers, change makers, and people I find interesting. I am your host, Pip. Today, we are talking with Roddy Bell Shelton Biggs. Roddy is a queer, BIPOC, non-binary seminarian and an aspiring public theologian. Roddy uses they-them pronouns. Owning the Christian faith of their ancestors, Roddy is grounded in Unitarian Universalist faith communities by choice. Roddy is called to lead radical love, care, and sanctuary movements, simultaneously disrupting patriarchy and all systems of oppression plaguing our world. They genuinely believe that we must do everything in love as we do justice, love mercy, and tread humbly. Hi, Roddy. Roddy is the incoming intern minister for the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of Fredericksburg, Virginia, and ministerial aspirant with the Unitarian Universalist Association. They are also the former worship lead at UU Young Adult Revival Network 20 through 22 and a former member of the UU Mental Health Network Board of Directors 2020 through 2022. Hi, Roddy. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Doing wonderful. Can't really complain. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear it. And I'm so glad to have you on the show. It's great to be on. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So how about start by telling me about your journey to becoming a seminarian? Hmm. So start with the most loaded question. Love it. (laughs) So I grew up Presbyterian in East Tennessee and left religion after coming out around 13, 14 years old. Kind of wanted nothing to do with it, ran from religion kind of in all the ways. Told myself, oh, you're not religious, you're not spiritual, and that I could live my life without it. So I got really involved in community justice, community organizing work, and the movement work around 16, 17 years old, which led me to start reevaluating some spiritual practices, learning more about community groups and dynamics. I discovered the Unitarian Universalist Church kind of through that social justice movement space. And admittedly, for the first three or four years after knowing about the church, I used the church for social justice. So I'd call the local church and say, hey, there was this rally coming up downtown. Get your people down there. And they would say things like, Yeah, absolutely. And here's kind of the things we'll respond to. Here's the things we won't respond to. Here's our theology. That church was Tennessee Valley UU when at the time this would have been 2014, 2015. The John Coffey was the ministerial intern there, who now is the financial aid director at Mebio Lombard, the seminary that I go to. So John would say things like, well, you know, if you ever want to come check us out on a Sunday morning for worship, know that you can do so. And if we're not a good fit, we'll still show up for activism. I was like, okay, yeah, sure, John, whatever. But can you get people here? It's like, yeah, of course. So that was kind of my relationship with the Unitarian Universalist Church for about three years. 2016 happens. And as we know, the road fell apart. A less than favorable candidate became president of the United States. And everything that I'd been doing didn't really make sense anymore. January 1st, 2017 is a Sunday. And I found myself worshiping at Tennessee Valley UU, absolutely falling in love with it, falling in love with religion and spirituality all over again. A year later, witnessing John's ordination, calling him three days later and saying, this is all your fault in the most loving way possible. (laughs) 
and enrolled in a undergrad program in religious studies and just completed my first year of seminary at Meadville Lombard. Excellent. That's quite an interesting journey. Um, curious, why, if you're comfortable answering, why did you leave religion in the first place? So I grew up in a pretty conservative-ish family and a Presbyterian church that didn't really acknowledge LGBTQ identity one way or the other. And so around 12, 13, when I started asking questions of my youth leaders, of the minister of the church, as like, what does the Bible say about this? What if somebody was this, not saying that it was me, I wasn't met with the oh, well, we don't affirm that and you're going to hell, which many people are met with. But I also wasn't met with the, oh, it's not a problem and God still loves you. It was just kind of don't talk about it mm -hmm. and was always the, so what do you think? And it's like, well, I'm 12. <laughs> you went to seminary. You're the reverend. So aren't you supposed to like guide somebody theologically and tell them where they belong, tell them that they're worthy, tell them that they have dignity, tell them that they're loved or tell them to get out. And hopefully it's not the latter. So I left because I essentially was made to believe that religion and spirituality, especially Christianity wasn't for me. And now at 29, I know all of that is a lie. And I consider myself a Christian that's grounded in Unitarian Universalism. Okay. Um, what do you do you find a tension between the Christian faith and the UUism? Or how have you kind of reconciled the two? I don't really find a tension between okay. them because when we are looking at our universalist and our Unitarian histories, we did start out as a Christian faith and grew to adopt or to support and bring in all the world's religions. So those teachings are still very much at the center. What I find tension in is the Christian church that I grew up in. Mm -hmm but I'm not the same type of Christian. So I consider myself now more of a universalist Christian where it really is about the universal love of God, the universal salvation. Don't really believe that somebody would put us onto this earth and then condemn us to hell. So I personally don't believe in hell because why would you be live your life and then be condemned to a place of suffering and pain when living on earth for many, especially those with marginalized identities, being queer, non-binary, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, person of color is already a hell. So for me, I really focus on the universal love, the universal messages of salvation, a loving God, a merciful God, and live my life in accordance to that. And at the core, one of our sources of, one of our six sources of the Unitarian Universalist faith is that we are grounded in Judaic Christian religion. And mm -hmm. so that's where I kind of lean in. And Admittedly, we are starting to kind of see a resurgence of UU Christian movements, and our churches are moving kind of more into a openness to having Christian identity again, where there was a period of time when it was stark humanist, but that's not kind of where the trend is now. True. I've noticed uh, similar things as well myself. 
if you don't mind me asking, how does your family feel about your sort of the journey you've had through different faiths? They've struggled with it, hmm. but they are slowly coming around. They don't fully understand the Unitarian Universalist Church, but are very proud of where I am and what I'm doing. Okay, well, I'm glad that you have support from them. In your bio, you say that you are an aspiring public theologian. Um, how do you see your career as a theologian looking? Yes, yeah, so I see my career as a theologian taking shape in a lot of different ways. I came into ministry, wrote into seminary with a social justice background. Mm -hmm. So I can look back at some of the protest I was helping to organize at 16, at 21, at 24, and look at some of the speeches that I would give, some of the ways that I was organizing, some of the ways that I was framing things, and would be like, oh, that could preach. And so... I see a very big difference in being a minister and only being in the church. So I am called to parish ministry. But for me, the parish doesn't stop at the walls of the building because we do have hybrid. We need, have to lean into that hybrid world. Protests are going to happen. So what happens if the minister of a church is isolated into their office and isn't out there in the streets demanding change, isn't out there on the front lines saying, this isn't okay and this is why I support this as a minister, as a theologian. And so for me, public theology, saying that I'm inspiring public theologian is to take everything that I'm learning in seminary, all of the experiences of my life, all of the books that come together, and believing that it's not just, it's not enough just to preach it from the pulpit, because sometimes the people that need it most aren't going to be in that at that church, and they're never going to come to that church. So we have to get out there, we have to be present, we have to be available. So doing things like what Reverend Susan Frederick Gray, the president of the UUA, did during General Assembly when Roe versus Wade was overturned, on a dime, saying like, we are going downtown and I'm going to speak and you all should follow. So hundreds of UUs descended in downtown Portland this past weekend week, during the General Assembly. And in that moment, Susan was a public theologian because she was taking her message outside of General Assembly. So public theology is more about the embodying the full community and not just focusing on those who someone might think that a minister traditionally serves being the members of their church community, when in reality, as a minister, you are a minister to that church. But I also believe that that church is a part of a community. So therefore, you're a minister to that community. And how can you minister to a community if you're not in the community? So that's what I see as public the theology. Okay. Do you see, do you feel like there's also an element of proselytization that, um, that needs to happen as far as Unitarian Universalism making it out more into the world? Um, I'd say that it needs to happen, but there's definitely been a time in UU history where we've shied away from that 
we've kind of got this idea that we can't be evangelical in nature, not to say that we're an evangelical church, but there's nothing wrong with going out saying, this is who I am, this is my faith community, here's the news that we have to share. The difference comes in in then saying, and you need to join us, which is where it gets dangerous in evangelical movements. But there's nothing wrong, as far as I'm concerned, with us being evangelical in messaging. So going out and saying, we have inherent worth and dignity and what the Supreme Court or so-called Supreme Court is saying in the name of religion goes against our religion. And having that theological grounding to make those claims, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, like I said, it becomes a problem is if after that, then it becomes like the moment of conversion So I'm absolutely not for Unitarian Universalism trying to convert people to the faith. But sharing a message, being a public witness, being in the movement, not being afraid to put oneself out there. Maybe we do need to be a little more evangelical in nature because we want our churches to grow, right? And how's the faith going to grow if all of the work of the faith happens on Sunday morning behind closed doors or a password-protected Zoom screen? Mm-hmm. Where do you think that Unitarian Universalism is uh, in the work of challenging systems of oppression? Behind. That's a big question. <laughs> I, I think we're behind. Mm. There's been, there was a time when I would have said Unitarian Universalism was at the forefront. So when you're looking kind of at the beginning of marriage equality, when you're looking at like it being one of the first churches to start ordaining LGBTQ people, in sexual health, starting the OWL program, I would say that we were kind of in the forefront then, kind of at the height of the civil rights movement when many of our churches were responding. But now I personally hear often conversations around, oh, well, we were involved in the civil rights movement, so we can't be racist Mm -hmm. or oh, we had a gay minister in 1998 and did the welcoming congregation model for LGBTQ safe congregations in 2003. So we can't be homophobic or transphobic. We're a liberal church. And then looking at that and being like, okay, and how are we responding now? Because to say that we were involved in 1950, 1955, 1960, to say that we were welcoming in 2003 to LGBTQ people isn't really living into that. And there are faith communities that on a large or scale are leaning into that in ways that Unitarian Universalism, I feel, is now trying to play catch up because we isolated. We ignored a lot of the things where some of the larger denominations kept pushing forward. We kind of hit that wall and didn't burst through. And so in the last 10, 15 years, Honestly, like in the last four years, even, we've started pushing against that wall more and more. And that is because we're getting out of our churches and sharing messages in different ways. 
but the time of saying, oh, well, our church was founded in the civil rights movement and I marched in the civil rights movement and all of these other things isn't enough anymore because it's not the civil rights movement anymore. And there are still civil rights injustices taking place. Trans people, especially trans women of color, are still being murdered in the streets at alarming rates. There is still violence. There is still death. There is, are still oppressive laws in place. And we don't do all that we could to respond, especially being the liberal church that we claim to be. What do you think that individual you use can do to try to push the needle forward? Get out there, educate themselves, learn about differing models, not to rely on how things were. So it's like I said, it's not enough to say that you marched in the first March on Washington, which there are people that did. And I'm so grateful that we have UUs that can tell that story. I'm grateful that we have UUs that can say that they are pictured with MLK. But that was then. And so I guess what I would say is what are we doing now? And how can we respond now? So definitely getting out there. I think one of the be most beautiful things, and I've already mentioned it, but I'll say it again, just to kind of respond to that question, is during General Assembly, when that ruling came down on Roe versus Wade, and 500 UUs at General Assembly, if not more, showed up in downtown Portland. Many of us had collars on, many had stoles on, and making a presence, being there when the president of the denomination was speaking, and making it known that there is a faith community out there that does not agree with the court's decision in a very public way. So I think what we have to do is to get out of our own heads, get out of our own comfort zone, get out of our smaller church community, plug in to the larger church community, and then use that larger church community to engage in the community itself because we can't shape, we can't change, we can't influence anything if we are only preaching to people who more or less will agree with us or who hear our message every day. So I really hear what you're saying about getting out there um, one thing that's going on right now for our viewers that don't know um, is the Unitarian Universalist uh, world is, is um, kind of coming, is trying piecemeal to uh, work to fight against racism within our congregations. Um, and we have seven, uh, well, we had seven principles uh, a lot of churches have adopted the eighth principle. The eighth principle, I'll read it real quick, is we, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. Um, I'm, I'm curious, Roddy, in your life, either at your home church or at the internship church where you're about to start, where are they at with the eighth principle? 
So I can't speak directly to the internship coach because mm -hmm. I don't know. I know that it's been a conversation and I can say that I know that they are engaging in that process. Okay. For both of my home churches being Tennessee Valley UU in Knoxville, Tennessee and First Unitarian Universalist in Nashville, they have both adopted the eighth principle and are fully living into it, are embracing what that means and are allowing the eight principles to influence how they engage and how they respond, both in Sunday morning worship and in community partnerships. So I will be very interested in seeing what the Article 2 Study Commission, which is a group that has been charged with the examining the second article of the Unitarian Universalist Association bylaws, which is where the current seven principles and six sources of the Unitarian Universalist faith are outlined, and seeing what they come up with in 2023 and what that vote may look like in 2024. I know that there are some conversations around possibly getting rid of all of the principles and all of the sources and writing a shared statement. There might be that the principles get rewritten, reworded, that the sources change or adapt, but that commission is really just kind of beginning that work. And it's going to be very important work because we will be living into a new model of ministry and faith and public witnessing together. Well, it seems to me like the majority of UUs are on board with moving forward with that work. Um, we do have a vocal minority who are kind of against it, I guess I would say. Um, and it was interesting to me, uh, I wasn't in person at GA, uh, General Assembly, but, you know, I, I watched it virtually and um, it was sort of interesting in the general sessions, um, you know, when there was like time to comment on different things um, to see, you know, people from that vocal group, um, you know, kind of nitpicking at the way that processes were working and such, you know. Um, what was the mood in uh, Portland around that? I think it varied. Mm. And it varied based on one's identity. Mm. So I know for me, there were definitely moments that as a queer, non-binary, BIPOC person, that I had to leave the room, that I couldn't be there because it was too close to home and would do more harm than good. I mean, I think you named it. There was definitely a minority of UUs that don't share this belief, but I'd also say that in that majority of UUs that do, that some of them are no better. And I say that because you'll hear statements like, oh, I'm in favor of anti-racism. And I believe that we are doing really amazing things, but we don't need the eighth principle because the first principle already has that included. And they truly believe that. The first principle being inherent worth and dignity right. of every person. Just saying that for our listener. Absolutely. So they truly believe, as you said, the first principle, inherent worth and dignity of every person includes every person but then when 
I look at that as someone who has multiple marginalized identities and look at who was at the table when those principles were being crafted, I have to wonder, was I included in that because people like me weren't at the table when the inherent worth and identity of every person being the first principle was written down. We weren't at the table when the second, when the third, the fourth principles, fifth principles were written. And so I have to wonder, was I included? And knowing that there was a group of BIPOC UUs led by some amazing individuals that are saying, you know what, these don't call us to do anything and maybe we weren't included in that. And so it's really harmful for BIPOC UUs to hear those statements as to, oh, well, we don't need an eighth principle because our seven principles already call us to do this work, when in reality, they don't call us to do anything. I heard someone say recently that our principles are a really good kind of affirmation of engaging. And they're kind of this beautiful idea. But when you look at them, they don't fully call us to respond, to engage, because you have things like inherent worth and identity of every person, which is beautiful, but then it's also to covenant, to affirm and promote. What does that fully mean can vary. Well, you look at the eighth principle and have it saying to accountably dismantle racism, systems of oppression, in ourselves, our institutions, as we work to do all of these things, building beloved community, that calls us forward. And will a lot of, I feel a lot of people have a problem with the eighth principle is in one word, and that is in accountability, because none of the other principles have that language. They are all very open, they're fluid, they are deeply personal, just like the eighth is. But the eighth principle does something different in calling us to do something. And I'll also add to that, that I've heard a lot of congregations say that they believe that it's too long, that it doesn't match the other principles when congregations are often sharing that principle. And you did it as well. But the beginning of that, so it's like we, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, Covenant to Affirm and Promote, is actually the preamble to all of our principles. So we could read that to be, we, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. But over time, we have just said the first principle, inherent worth and dignity. So really what the eighth principle is, is to be accountable in dismantling racism in ourselves and our institutions as we build beloved community. Mm. And that's where I see a lot of that challenge because you don't see people arguing about building beloved community. You don't see people arguing about dismantling racism and oppression. You see people arguing more often than not about that accountability because it makes them feel something where perhaps, and this might be a bold thing to say, the other principles don't invoke a feeling unless mm. they do for you. But to say things like the seventh principle 
as part of an interconnected web of all existence. Like that could be deeply powerful for you and it could call you to do something in your life, but it doesn't necessarily do so. Well, the eighth principle directly says you must be accountable in doing this. And here is what that looks like. And here is how we are going to get there. Yeah. Well, and the people who argue that the first principle is enough, um, you know, I guess my counter argument to that is, well, then why weren't we doing the work more? You know, exactly. if it was enough, because I, I don't know that it it was. And like you said, it, it you know, the big question is, is who was at the table uh, when those words were written? And mm -hmm. it wasn't everybody. Um, and as far as accountability, uh, that really, you know, I can see why some people are resistant to accountability. Um, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't take away from it. You know, right. um, we need to be accountable, not only to do it, but in how we do it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we need to be checking in and making sure that our actions have the kind of impacts that we are trying to create mm -hmm. um, instead of just, you know, continuing to move forward as if everything is great, you know, and resting on our laurels, as you mentioned with, right. you know, the, like the civil rights movement and people feeling like, well, we did that work, so we're good. <laughs> right. And I think that kind of brings up another thing is that so often we do kind of rest on those laws or we use our principles as a means of like checking off a box. Hmm. And same with like our covenants. So being covenant of faith is absolutely beautiful until it's not, until covenant is used to call somebody out. And more often than not, that again is somebody that has some form of marginalized identity, whether it's a mental health condition, a racial identity that isn't the majority white identity that our congregations are, where you will hear things like, oh, well, according to our covenant, this. And it's used to try to bring somebody back into line where perhaps where the eighth principle comes in, if we look at our principles and our sources as a truly living document, which is what we say they are. We say that Unitarian Universalism is a living faith, that our covenants are a living, breathing document. Then why do some of our communities have the same covenant that they had when they were founded in 1900? Mm. why are we so resistant to adding another principle? Why do we believe that Unitarian Universalism always had seven principles? Is it because that's what we've known in our lifetime? Because the truth is Unitarian Universalism didn't used to have seven principles. Because you had the Unitarian principles, you had the Universalist principles, and there was a time when the faith had five principles. Then it had six. Then it had seven. And now there are people saying, you know what? These seven aren't enough. And now we need an eighth to call us into this work. And every principle builds on one another. It's not an individualized thing. So you have the first principle, inherent growth and dignity of every person. And then you move to that eighth principle, talking about dismantling racism and other oppressions in oneself and institutions. You move to the fifth principle and talk about like a democratic process. Well, you can't have a democratic process if you don't see someone's inherent growth and dignity 
and if you aren't working to dismantle racism and other oppressions. So they're all interconnected and they all add something to one another. But what so often happens is it's let's talk about this first principle or this fifth principle or this eighth principle as if it's an isolated topic when in reality it's a continuing conversation piece and you need all of them to intersect, to interact, to engage with, to live into, to work to embody, to create the Unitarian Universalist faith that I believe and many of us believe that we can create, but we aren't going to do that if we're arguing over the voting of a principle or arguing over if we are already doing this work or saying things that we don't need the eight because the first or it's like you said like resting on our laws as to oh well we can't be a benefactor of racism because we're a liberal church. We engage in the civil rights movement. Our church was built in response to the civil rights movement. We had people who marched in Washington when like that was good then, but this is now. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting to me when you said checking a box, you know, people feel like it's like a one and done kind of thing. Um, and that was one of the really interesting things uh, at GA for me was the where lecture mm-hmm. when Abraham X. Kendi, Dr. Kendi talked about, you know, uh, sort of the manifestations of racism over time and, and, Racism is like constantly adapting. You know, that was something I really took away from that lecture is that, you know, like it becomes more complicated throughout Mm -hmm. time, like how racist ideas are perpetuated and like create the impacts that they have. And so like we, it'll never be a one and done. Like it'll never be something that we can, you know, even if a, a congregation does take on the eighth principle now, you know, yeah. they can't say 10 years from now, well, we did take on the eighth principle, so we've done our work or, you know, right. they can't, you know, like it, the work is never going to be done. Like it, it's always, we're always going to have to keep on top of it. Right. I mean, I think that's exactly it because we can look at the history of racism in America and there are people who truly believe that racism isn't a thing in America anymore because slavery isn't legal. When in reality, what has happened, as you said, is it changes, it shifts. So yes, maybe slavery or enslavement isn't legal anymore, but mass incarceration is. And you look at the criminal justice system in America and look at who is incarcerated and what for. And people of color are more likely to be incarcerated for life than a white individual. So you can't tell me that race doesn't play a role into that in some way that it doesn't still shape and influence our nation. It was hundreds of years in the making. And honestly, it could take hundreds of years to rectify all of that. And we may never do it, as you said, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, our congregations that have adopted the eighth principle if Unitarian Universalism completely abandons the principles and comes out with something new, we are going to have to respond. 
and we can't keep resting on those laws or the way things always were or one of my favorite things to hear is having congregations be like oh where are our youth and young adults and BIPOC members and truly not understanding why they're not there and it has nothing to do with the theology it has nothing to do with how the community is interacting with themselves but everything to do with those systems of oppression with how the community is responding how they are engaging or not engaging, how they are or aren't welcoming. So I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a UU space and being a somewhat light-skinned but still a person of color, having the question asked, so where are you from? Which is like a beautiful question that you would ask anyone. And then when I give an answer, it being, oh, so where are you really from? Because like implying this, like I can't be from here or like, so what brought you here today? And then showing like, oh, well, I'm a you, you. And then being like, oh, okay. When really like I've had that happen before in a community where I kind of walked in the welcome table was like super excited I guess to see a BIPOC person walking into space ask that question and I was like oh I'm I'm a UU and I am here to worship today when in reality I was leading the service but didn't tell them that hmm so later when they saw me at the pulpit, you could see kind of that click as to, oh, did I do something? Did I say something wrong? But then of course there was no acknowledgement of it later. And it was just like, oh, that didn't happen. Well, it absolutely did. And if I hadn't have been the invited guest, the like seminarian that was delivering the message wasn't being paid to be there I would have turned around and left that morning Hmm. and then you ask the question or our congregations ask the question as to where are the young adults and BIPOC members but that's how you're going to engage with them I'm sorry that happened. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier when we were talking uh, that you got into community justice work when you were a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you situate yourself within movement spaces? Yeah, so I, as you said, and as I mentioned, got into community justice work pretty young. I was 15 the first time I kind of like started getting into it. I did a lot of LGBTQ activism. I've done suicide prevention work and mental health advocacy. At one point, I was a national youth ambassador for the Human Rights Campaign, which is the largest LGBTQ coalition advocacy group in the nation and went around advancing equality on that front. I have done work with GLSEN, which is the Gay Lesbian Student Education Network and going into high schools and middle schools and helping communities set up and launch LGBTQ groups within the schools. I did safe zone education, which is education 
for mostly faculty and staff of middle high schools and colleges around what it means to be LGBTQ and how as a leader in those schools that they are responsible for caring for the lives of LGBTQ students and educating them on how to engage in that work. I, as mentioned, also have done a lot of suicide prevention, a lot of mental health work. I am mental health first aid certified and have been for a few years. I'm currently in the process of becoming emotional CPR certified, which is an alternative to mental health first aid, which is mental health first aid is rooted kind of in the medicalized model of mental health kind of in the prescribing, diagnosing, calling the police, psychiatric, all of that, where ECPR is about connecting. It's about being present with someone, connecting kind of on that one-to-one, heart-to-heart level and helping somebody realize their potential, helping them perhaps reconnect with the will to live but not criminalizing or dehumanizing them in the process. And so a lot of the justice work that I've been doing since 15, which is still what I'm doing now, has been centered around recognizing and embracing one's humanity, finding ways to engage with one's inherent dignity, engaging in conversations with people who don't necessarily agree because we're not going to change the nation if we're always engaging with those who agree with us. So if I'm always having a conversation with a liberal with a democratic post with a democrat with a uu then it's like i'm gonna change that circle but what happens if i go down the street to the baptist church and ask the minister if i can talk about racism with them or ask the minister ask a minister of a southern baptist church It's like, hey, I am a seminarian and I'm queer and non-binary. And can we have a conversation around your theology of LGBTQ people? Knowing full and well that we're not going to agree that they think I'm going to hell, but being willing to have that conversation with them just to get the conversations going, knowing that things are shifting, that things are changing, that Southern Baptist churches are shifting, that congregations are changing. I mean, in the last month or so, the United Methodist Church split over LGBTQ issues, racism, and a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. And that happened because people started asking questions. They started challenging how the church was operating. People were leaving. People were saying, this isn't the faith I want to be a part of, but I still need to be a part of it. But what's that going to look like? And so you got a new Methodist church. And that wouldn't have happened if people didn't push on that wall a little bit or a lot, honestly. But because people were willing to speak up and speak up loudly and say, this isn't my theology, this isn't what I believe. And those who also said, no, this absolutely is our theology and this is what we believe. But there was that conversation. And so I think for me, And for the future of religion in general, we have to be willing to have those conversations. We have to be willing to engage. 
And we have to be willing and ready to change and adapt because we have to change and adapt to stay afloat. I think the pandemic, if nothing else, taught us that we have to adapt and we have to adapt quickly because if we didn't adapt, if our congregations essentially overnight didn't go online, they wouldn't have had a church, but they were willing and able to adapt some easier than others. But that adaptation came pretty easily where things around racism, anti-oppression, conversations around what it means to be a church that's called to respond to social justice efforts is still a point of conversation as to how or why or when or if it's safe enough when the reality is it will never be safe enough. So does that mean that we don't engage in anti-racist and multicultural and LGBTQ and beloved community work? because it's not safe, because it's not gonna be. It never was. Yeah, the work needs to happen and we need to be doing it now. Speaking of conversations, uh, before we wrap up for the day, how about you tell me about your new podcast? Yeah, so I recently within like the last three weeks, got the idea of launching a podcast titled Revolutionary Prophecies, which is really the embodiment of kind of that public theologian space that's in my bio, where I am going to be engaging in kind of some of these theological debates, conversations, where I might be sharing some things that I've been reading, asking some really challenging questions. From time to time, there will be a sermon out there that either I or somebody else has given that I feel really speaks to what a revolutionary Unitarian Universalist community will look like, what it needs to look like. So the trailer is out and the first episode is out. And and the first episode is a sermon that I've given once that I'm actually giving again on Sunday, which would be July 3rd, about what it takes to make the wounded whole healing from racism, oppression, from all of these things and asking some really hard questions around what our Unitarian Universalist faith calls us to do and where we really are in that work. So there's definitely going to be some conversations to be had. I've got some people lined up for kind of the next installments. So there's going to be an episode with the Reverend Barbara Myers, who is the president of the UU Mental Health Network, talking about revolutionary mental health in a faith community. I would love to have you on to talk some about some of the things that you've done and how you've carried out your internship in a non-UU space. So you talk about like going across those divides, what it might've been like to do an internship in a space that might not have been welcoming of some of your theology. I would love to talk about that. So that's just kind of some of where it's going. So yeah, Revolutionary Prophecies, it's available on really any podcast network it's on Spotify, it's on Apple Podcast, 
and ready anywhere else that you can get your podcast from. So give it a listen. Well, I'm very excited. Uh, that sounds wonderful. Um, but we are out of time. So um, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, take care. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please join us again another day on Pip Talk. <laughs>